So uh, the funny thing about meeting that first time at Chick-fil-A is that I actually got pulled over and was given a speeding ticket on my way to meet her at Chick-fil-A. And I told the Lord, for all the times that I deserved to get a ticket and I didn't get one, I'll take it. So that was the way that we first met. I was a little out of sorts. But, uh, well, in addition to probably not being the best driver ever, um, don't tell my husband that I confessed that. I also, I am not the greatest baker ever. I actually hate baking. Um, but every once in a while, I'll get in the mood to make something that doesn't come from a box. And I'll go where I'm sure all of you guys go to find a good recipe. I go to Pinterest. And I like Pinterest because Pinterest makes it easy for people like me who don't love baking because you can easily find a recipe and you can find an easy recipe. And now they have this added feature where you can um, see those little videos where they show the finished product. And then you see the baker's hands just throwing their like, nice and neat little ingredients. And then before you know it, the cake is done. Well, I found a recipe that was entirely a video. And I thought, this is it. This is going to make me a baker. So I decided to go for it. And I tried this video. And I think I made it 60 seconds in before I was like, I'm done. I'm over this. I had to press pause and rewind so many times because I was frustrated. What I needed was everything written down and laid out for me. I wanted directions. I wanted the ingredients. And before too long, I realized what I wanted was a recipe. So I saw the finished product. I wanted to make it, but I was just too frustrated to keep going. And as I was thinking about our study this summer in Titus 2, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe the same thing is happening for us spiritually. We see the finished product, if you will, of this Titus 2 woman, this godly woman. We see the snapshot, the finished picture, and we want to be that. We want to be godly women. We want to implement the characteristics that we've been learning about. But do you ever feel like you just want someone to press pause, rewind, and list it out for you, so to speak? Well, today, that is exactly what Paul is going to do for us in verse 5. He's going to give us five specific characteristics that we can implement into our life in order to grow in godliness, five goals for godliness, if you will. And we have the privilege of looking at all five of those things in detail this morning. We're going to be spending our time in verse 5, but I would love, since it's our first, or our, excuse me, our last time getting together for us to read the passage as a whole, turn with me to Titus 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or given to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 5 gives us five beautiful characteristics that we each have the opportunity to implement. And I believe that all of us as women, whether we are married or single, whether we are moms or we don't have kids or whatever phase of life we're in, I believe each of us can take something away from these five things and implement them into our lives. And in fact, the very first thing we see on the list is a characteristic that is to be true not just of women, but of all people in general. Even the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 2, we see that Paul wants even the men to exhibit this characteristic, and that is self-control. Look with me at verse 5. The very first thing we see on this list is self-control, and that should be true of all Christians. Let's write it this way for our first point. If we want to be godly Christian women, we need to develop self-control. Develop self-control. 
Is there an image that pops into your head when you think of self-control? I, I just can't help it. Every time I think of self-control, I think about my family's childhood dog, Thor. And you've heard me talk about him before. But he is legendary in our family for his lack of self-control. And I think his crowning moment was when we found him in the backyard unresponsive. We thought he had died, but really he had just popped the lid off of his food bin and he ate nearly all of the 40-pound bag of dog food that my dad had filled it up that morning with. And miraculously, don't worry, he lived, <laughs> but we were laughing because you would think that there'd be something in his brain that would say, you know, we're good here. I'm full. That's enough. But no, his desire for Imes was so strong that it outweighed even his desire to survive, apparently. He was run and driven by his desire, namely for food. That was very much true of his whole life. Well, I doubt that you or I, or hopefully anyone we know, has as little self-control as my dog. And yet that is kind of the picture of the opposite of self-control. Self-control defined as this to behave in a sensible manner, to have right thoughts about what one should do, or to let one's mind guide one's body. Galatians 5.23 says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And in the following verse, in verse 24, Paul says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Self-control is a requirement for all who follow Christ. And that's because as believers, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. We lay aside our own passions, and our own desires, and we choose to live for what he desires instead. In a very real way, each of us must yield what we want to what he wants. We have to know what pleases God and choose to do that. If that's what self-control means, then how do we implement that in our daily life here, today, now as women? Well, I think there are a few things that we can do this week that would help us to become women of self-control, that would help us develop this in our life. And firstly, if right thinking is to inform right actions, then obviously the first step is that we need to make sure we are thinking rightly. And if we are going to think rightly about anything, we know that it has to be informed by the Word of God. If we are to develop self-control, we have to be women who make reading our Bible a priority. We have to. We have to know the truth of what God's word says and not just skim through to check a box, but to read in order to understand so that we could live it out and apply it. We have to be women who read God's word. And it's so easy to say, yeah, I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to get better at that and then walk out those doors and nothing changes. So really, if we're going to develop self-control, we need to be women who not only commit to reading God's word, but also make a plan. You've got to make a plan. When will you read God's word? What will you read? For how long? What will you actually do to implement this? Maybe it means jumping into the daily Bible reading with us, or maybe it means signing up for women's Bible study in the fall, but whatever it is, make a plan to take in as much of God's word as possible so that you can inform right thinking, which will in turn affect right living. And if we're going to really think right thoughts and fill our minds with God's word, then we also need to think about the way we can use God's word in a real-life, everyday, tangible way, and that is that we need to memorize God's word. Have you ever had those moments when you feel you are about to lose self-control? I uh, joke, I can feel the sin coming up to my mouth. 
Well, in those moments when you feel like you're about to lose it, is there a verse that you can think through in your head, some truth? Maybe it speaks to anger. Maybe it speaks to self-control. Whatever it is, when you memorize God's word, it's like having tools in your belt that you can pull out and readily use in actual real-life practical moments to help fight against those times that you are tempted to lose self-control. Throughout this morning, I'll be giving you lots of proverbs that might be helpful to memorize, and one of those proverbs is 2528. says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Not a good situation to be left without walls. As women, we need to be committed to growing in self-control. And the great news about this is that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that God enables us to do. So if we want to grow in self-control, then also we need to be asking God for help in this. We've got to be women who pray. Even in those moments when you are tempted to lose it, even stopping and praying is such a great tool to grow in self-control. As women, we need to bolster our prayer life. We need to up both the quality and the quantity of the time we spend talking to God. It's so important. We know that right thinking really does affect right actions. My dad explained it to me like this when I was in high school. He said, your mind is the train engine, and it's pulling behind it the cars of your emotions and your actions, but your mind leads the way. I love the way one commentator said it when he defined self-control as to let one's mind guide one's body. Well, then self-control is an absolute necessity then to the very next thing that Paul gives us on the list, which if you look with me at verse 5, right after we see self-control, we see purity. Purity. We belong to God. We are His. And so how we handle our bodies matters to God. Let's write it this way for our second point. We need to commit to personal purity. Commit to personal purity. My girls love to chew on ice. It's a recently acquired habit that I think they learned from Pastor Mike. (laughs) But every once in a while, I'll be sitting at the park, and I'll pick up my drink, my latte or my water or whatever it is, and I see this little film right on top of my drink. Maybe it's dirt, maybe it's sunscreen, I don't know. But when I'm sitting at the park watching my kids play, I don't want their fingers in my drink. So every time this happens, I yell to them, girls, don't put your fingers in mommy's water. And they always respond the same way. Mommy, it's fine, it's good enough, you can still drink that. No, mommy doesn't even drink water from the tap. No way I'm gonna drink this thing. Well, as picky as we can be about our drinking water being perfectly pure, How often do we think about the importance of our physical bodies being perfectly pure? How many times do we say, ah, it's okay, it's good enough, when we know there's room for improvement? Purity, defined, literally means having no moral defect or blemish, especially pertaining to sexual purity. This is similar to self-control. As believers, we know that our body no longer belongs to ourself. It is God's, and we have to handle ourselves in a way that pleases God and not pleases ourselves. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We need to practice purity being without moral defect in any way. 
And this applies to every woman who follows Christ, whether you are married or single. And most obviously, when we talk about purity, the very first thing that comes to mind is sex. Each of us, as Christian women, needs to engage in sex God's way. And that's going to look drastically different if you are married or if you are single. If you are single, you are not to engage in sex at all outside of marriage. God created marriage to be a covenant between one man and one woman, and there only is where sex is to be enjoyed. If you are a single woman that is committed to abstaining from sex, what you are doing is in a very practical, real-life way. You are laying down your own desires and your own passions and choosing to live for Christ's desire instead. You are upholding his good design for marriage and for sex and showing that you respect his choice, even if it may not be your own. It is important that single women abstain from sex. Whereas if you are married, it looks very different. You are not to see yourself as only being your own property, but you're to see your body as belonging to your husband as well. You need to love your husband enough to give yourself to your husband regularly and joyfully. Paul makes it so clear in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, that you should not be withholding sex from your husband unless you mutually decide so that you can be praying together. Ladies, you will help guard against sexual sin in your life, and you will help your husband guard against sexual sin in his life when you obey Scripture's command to give yourself to your husband. Marriage is, a, is the only place where sex is to be enjoyed. That's it. Outside of marriage, sex is not to happen. So let's look at marriage and sex within marriage as being the good gift that God made it to be, the thing that helps us fight against sin, that helps us bond in unity with our husbands. That's a good gift. We've got to treat it that way. But we also know that purity involves far more than just sex. It involves the way that we use our actual body in a very practical way, the way that we present ourselves, the way we carry ourselves, the clothes we put on our body. If we want to be women of purity, we need to make sure that we are dressing modestly. We've got to make sure that we are covering our bodies appropriately. And I'm sure none of us really needs a ton of explanation on what this means. We all know what this means. We all know that deep down we have to ask ourselves the motives. And maybe a good habit to form would be when you get ready in the morning, ask, what am I trying to accomplish here? What am I trying to get at? What do I want people to notice about me? Am I trying to get eyes to look at something that maybe they shouldn't? Another practical test just to see how well we're doing in this department is to think about your social media for a minute. If I were to go onto your Instagram and print off every picture that you have posted of yourself, every, every pose with that, the, the hand on your hip and the sensual facial expression or the bathing suit shots, whatever it be, if I were to go on your Instagram, print out all your pictures and hang them in the church office, would you be embarrassed? We need to be women who are committed to presenting our bodies in a way that is honoring to God that is without moral defect or blemish in any way. This is a decision that we've got to make. It starts in the mind. Jesus made it super clear for us in Matthew 5, 28, that the way we think is directly connected to our purity. This means that we have got to be on guard against the things that we entertain, the thoughts that we think about. Whether we are married or single, we need to make sure we are not entertaining fantasies about a man who's not our husband. We've got to really stay away from the, if only my husband were, dot, 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 thoughts. What you watch on TV, the books you read, all of those things will influence the way you think. And if you are a woman that is committed to personal purity, you've got to be careful what you take in. Proverbs 11.22 says it this way. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman 
without discretion. We want to be women who use discretion in the way we dress, the way we act, and what we think about. God wants our whole mind, our whole body to be devoted to godliness. He wants all of us, and he wants all of us all the time. Not just when we're sitting here in this room, but when we are out and about, when we're at Target or at the park with our kids or even at home. When we're at home and all our guards are down, even there God wants us committed to godliness. And that is exactly what Paul addresses for us in the next point. Look at verse 5 with me. Right in the middle of all these attitudes, we see a specific action, that we are to be working at home. I worded it this way for our third point. We need to work hard in our homes. Work hard in your home. In the middle of a list of attitudes that sometimes are judged subjectively, here is something to be seen objectively, something clear. The godly woman works hard in her home. Chaos does not reign in her domain, not within and not without. She works hard. And this is wildly unpopular in our culture, so I really want to stop for a minute and say what this is not saying. This is not saying that you are not allowed to have a job outside of your home, that you may never leave your home, or that your job is to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen at all times. That is not what this verse is saying. What this is saying is that God has set this role up that the home is the primary responsibility of the woman. This is her primary responsibility. She is the main manager, if you will. She can do the work herself or she can delegate it to others, but she is to be the one who is in charge of the care and function of her home. And this is true whether you are married or single, whether you rent a room or you own your own home, be the kind of woman that takes care of the place she lives. Take care of your home. I think it's really interesting to remember why Paul wrote this in the first place. He was writing this to the Christian women who lived in Crete. Do you guys remember the introduction that we were given to the people in Crete? In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul said this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. It's quite the introduction. These, the people of Crete were known for pushing and advancing uh, sexual liberty. Crete was an island off the coast of Italy in the Roman Empire. And as we've learned, many of the women who were married in that time did not get to choose their spouse. They were given in arranged marriages. So Crete... As one commentator said, this island of Crete was known, it was almost synonymous for immorality. Crete was known for pushing the new woman, is what they called it, the new woman. This new woman would be given the choice to leave her home and go and pursue sexual exploits that granted her desire that she was able to pick. Go and have your freedom. So obviously, when this would happen, wives would leave their homes and pursue their pleasures, both in town or from house to house, and their homes would fall into disarray as they did this. Their children would be neglected, things would kind of fall apart, but it didn't really matter because they were pursuing their passions. Paul wrote to directly counter that mindset. He wanted the Christian women in Crete to be totally different. He wanted them to be in stark contrast, far from leaving their homes behind and pursuing their own passions. He wanted the Christian women to be busy at home, that the hours that they spent and the time that they spent would benefit their children and their husbands and the people in their homes. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but see the similarities in our own culture. 
Women today are praised if they neglect their home. Or if you like to keep your home, if you're a homemaker, you're almost seen as less than, like you're not smart enough to do anything else, or you're just a glorified maid. Well, the Bible says so many other things that are very much opposite of that. That is not the picture that we see in Scripture of the woman who works hard at home. And I'm sure we've all heard of the Proverbs 31 woman, the glowing example, the woman who's worth more than rubies and she's excellent. And we've studied this, but have you ever really noticed how many times her home is mentioned all throughout Proverbs 31? We don't have a lot of time to spend here, um, but I think it would be worth it for us to flip over to Proverbs 31. I want us just to take a look, a really quick glance at a few verses that might help us understand how the Proverbs 31 woman saw her home. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and she works with willing hands. She's a willing worker. Right off the bat, we see that working hard element. No one has to force her to do her job. Verses 14 and 15 talk about the way that she provides food for her household. And look at verse 15 closely. See that little phrase? She rises while it is yet night. She does what it takes to get the job done. Verses 16, 17, 18, and 24 deal with how she handles the family finances. And verses 21 and 22 talk about how she provides food for her household. And I love the basic everyday things that it mentions. Her bed coverings, clothing. Verse 27 sums it up well. And this is another proverb that we can add to our list. She looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. This is a very practical picture, isn't it? And right off the bat, it begs the question, what about us? Do we work hard in our home? We should be women who don't let chaos reign in our home. If your husband or your kids had to give an evaluation of how you spend your hours in your day, would they say that they benefit from the way that you work in your home? Or might there be something that we might need to cut back or sacrifice for the sake of our families to do a better job? The kind of woman who works hard in her home this way is a blessing to others, especially to the people who live in her home, namely her husband and her children. Look how Proverbs 31:12 describes her. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She does him good. What a description. And really, that should be true of all Christian women. We should be known for doing good to others, especially those in our home. And that's exactly what Paul is going to give us next. Look at Titus 2.5 again. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, kind. That word kind literally means good. The verb form of this word, good or kind, means to benefit someone or to do good. Literally, you can say, this is a good doer. This should be the defining word of all Christian women. And it should be true of us. Let's write it this way for our fourth point. Let kindness describe you. Let kindness describe you. There's a drive-through near our house that my husband and I like to take our girls through to get ice cream. And we don't go to this place because it's particularly amazing, but uh, Doug and I joke, we're like, let's go see our friends. The kids that work in this drive-through are the most miserable people you have ever seen. And we laugh every time. We look forward to going to visit them. They take our money and they give us our ice cream. They're doing their job, but it's always finished with a have a good day. And we just laugh. It's the best. 
I'm sure their boss doesn't know that they are acting like this because as we all know, it's not just about how you do the job, but the attitude that you have while you're doing the job. Well, the same is true for us as Christian women. God has given us a specific role, a specific job, and we need to make sure that the attitude in which we do our job rings of kindness. It should be the reigning mantra of every Christian woman that we should be kind, that we should do good to others. And much like my friends in the drive-thru, one way that you can check to see how well you're doing and being a kind woman is to do a little assessment of your facial expressions, your vocal tone. This is a telltale sign about how you feel about your job. Are you miserable or do you embrace God's role for you with a smile? If kindness is to be true of you, you've got to watch the words that come out of your mouth as well. What we say is important. We've got to be kind women. Maybe we should all do an evaluation of our words. Are we quick to be rude or harsh or snap? Or do we do good to other people with our words? Do we build others up? When someone walks away from a conversation with you, would they say, oh, that did me good? Because that should be the goal. As a Christian woman, we should want to do good to others in our attitudes and in our words and also in our actions, which means that we need to look for ways to serve others. And this even starts at home. Do you see yourself as the victim of all your household chores? Are you more likely to complain? Or do you see everything in your task list that day as an opportunity to bless those people in your household? What about outside your home? Do you look for ways to do good to others? Kindness should define us. I always wonder if somebody has to say the, the first three words that come to mind when they think about me. Would kindness make the list? I hope so. And I hope it would be true of you as well. Proverbs 21, 21 says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life and righteousness and honor. Kindness should really characterize every Christian woman. And yet there is a kindness that is specific to married women. This one is very specific to married women and the way they treat their husband. And that's what Paul is going to go next on our list in verse 5. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Ladies, the greatest kindness that you can ever show your husband is to respect him and submit to him. Let's write it this way for our last point. Happily submit to your husband happily submit to your husband. When I was learning how to drive, uh, I remember this one day I came in and I complained to my mom about my dad being too harsh because I was 15 and I knew exactly how to drive a car. Thank you very much. Well, she told me a story about how when my grandfather was teaching her how to drive that would make me feel better about my dad's teaching methods. She said my grandpa used to sit in the front middle bench seat, buckle himself up, and then just put his leg on her side and do the pedals for her. And she talked about how scary it was when grandpa was your co-driver. Well, it in instantly made me feel better about my dad's uh, teaching methods, but it also kind of stuck in my mind as maybe the way we think about submission sometimes. Marriage should really not be a power struggle. So think of submission, if you will, like driving in a car. I doubt that any of us, when we are ready to go on family vacation, arranges the passengers in the seats in the car based on their value or importance. No. We all want to get every passenger in that car from point A to point B safely 
and alive to tell the tale. That's the goal. No one picks the seat based on their value, and yet there is only one driver's seat. Only one is given the responsibility of getting the rest of the passengers there safely. The same is true in marriage. Wives are asked to submit to their husbands because they have been asked by God to provide leadership for their family, not by merit of worth or because they're more valuable or their life is more precious, simply because God has asked them to do it. Wives are to happily submit to their husbands. And submission is probably the most misunderstood and wrongly interpreted uh, topic in Scripture. So I want to make sure that we're very careful with the wording here in verse 5. Look with me carefully at how Paul words this. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, not men in general. This is not a value statement. This is not saying that all women should be subservient to all men for all time. That is not what this is saying, as some have liked to twist the scriptures to say. What this is saying is that God has asked the husband to provide leadership for his family, and he is asking the wife to submit. That word submit is a military term. Uh, It's the Greek word hupotasso. It means to rank under. It's literally like you would see in a standing army. It's one unit, they work well together, but there are commanding officers and different levels of authority within the group. This provides structure, not chaos. The same is true in marriage. Wives are to happily arrange themselves under, to yield to their husband's leadership. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 11, and Colossians 3 are all explicitly clear about the roles of the husband and wife in marriage. Submission is something that your husband shouldn't have to ask you for because you should be willingly giving it because submission is asked of you by God. If we are not able to submit to Christ, then we will never be able to submit to our husbands. Unless your husband is asking you to sin or to contradict Scripture, you are to work with him, to yield to him. Maybe this means giving up some preferences so that you can cooperate with him. In fact, you might want to ask his opinion, maybe defer to him. You don't want to be his co-driver, and you don't want to be his backseat driver. You want to be his comrade. You want to be his wife that encourages him as he leads. But what if your husband is just not a good leader? He's not great at making decisions, and you're naturally better at it. That may be true, and yet God is still asking you to submit to your husband. This does not hinge on your husband's behavior unless he is asking you to sin. Submitting to our husbands requires that we are respectful of him. Does your husband actually feel like you respect him? Does he feel respected by you? Or do you talk to him maybe like one of your kids? Do you treat your coworkers or your boss at work or your friends differently than you treat your husband? If we're going to be submissive as God would have us be, we have to understand that submission is asked of us by God and it is for our good. And perhaps we might say, well, you know what? I agree. My husband's the leader. But really, we know that we're still the one kind of calling the shots because we know we're we're manipulating our husband. There's an old saying uh, that is not the way we should think. It is, the husband is the head and the woman is the neck that can turn the head wherever she wants. That is not the way that Christian women should think about their role in marriage. It's just not. And in fact, we have to be on guard against the ways that we manipulate our husbands with our words with our facial expressions or tears or emotions, just so that he will give us back the driver's seat. We need to be careful that we're not being a martyr and saying, fine, you make every decision ever until he's exasperated and gives us back the driver's seat. 
This means, ladies, quite frankly, if we are going to submit to our husband as God would have us do, which is scary sometimes, we're going to actually have to trust God. We're going to have to trust God because no man is ever going to lead his family perfectly, just like no woman is ever going to submit to her husband perfectly. And yet, the requirement remains. God is asking us to submit. And what does he say? In 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, he makes it very clear for us that we are to do good and submit to our husbands without fear. I love that phrase, without fear. Peter references uh, Sarah and Abraham. Abraham put Sarah in some positions that were not great. And yet Sarah stands as an example to us of a woman who trusted God and yielded to her husband and God rewarded her for it. And he will do the same for us when we submit to our husband without fear of all the things that could go wrong if he doesn't do things the way we would. We can't say that we trust God and yet refuse to yield control to our husband. But more than just yielding to him and cooperating with him, don't you want to be the kind of wife who is an active support to him? I love the way Bethany said it last time we met. Be your husband's cheerleader. Yes, I love that. Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Whew, that's a description. Are you that kind of wife? Do people who know your husband say, that man's wife is the crown on his head? That's what we should want to be. I love another proverb, Proverbs 31, 23, says her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. This is the wife who honors her husband in such a way that others honor him too. Trust me, no man who feels belittled and condescended is ever the envy of all the elders at the gate. It just doesn't work that way. We should be the kind of wife that looks to support our husband, to come alongside him, and really to encourage him as he takes on the heavy task of leading your family. He will stand before God one day and give an account for the way he provided leadership for you and for your family. Make sure that you are a support to him in this. It's a big deal. And ultimately, the reason you submit to your husband is all for the motive of submitting to Christ. You do this for Christ. It's always been and it always will be all about Christ. And really, that's the motive in everything, isn't it? All the things that we learn, all the things that we strive to become, this godly woman that we want to be, our actions, our attitudes, our words, everything always is always for Christ. And that should be the desire of our heart, that we see him glorified and honored through the way we act. Paul finishes up our section for us with exactly that, the motive. Let's read our verse one more time together. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There it is. That's the motive. That the word of God may not be reviled. We live in a culture where so many people are critical of Christ, of his church, of his word, and we want to make sure that we are living our life in a way that people aren't pointing their fingers and saying, ha, see, why would I want what you have? Or when we choose to act contrary to scripture, to point at us and say, did the Bible tell you to act like that? 
We've got to work hard to really double down on our efforts to do what is right and obey scripture instead of letting our life be the billboard of chaos and sin and slapping our Savior's name on it. We've got to represent him well. We don't want anyone to have an opportunity to speak poorly of the Lord we love or the word that he's given us. It's so important. I told you I don't love baking, but I think I actually have a valid reason why I don't love baking. Um, if you guys know my daughter, she has celiac disease. So if I bake anything, it has to be gluten-free. And gluten-free baking is the worst. It's awful. It has to be done with such precision that if you mess one little thing up, your, your cake is a pancake. And I've just given up. That's why I only cook from boxes at this point. Well, imagine with me that I go to Pinterest, I find the perfect gluten-free recipe, and I set out to make this recipe. But let's just say that I want to make some changes to this recipe. I know that gluten-free recipes have to be done in a particular specific way, but I, I just don't like butter, which is true. And so I decide that I'm going to leave butter completely out of my recipe. But I love sugar. So because I left butter completely out, I'll just double the sugar. And, you know, I only have half the baking soda, but it's good enough. Works for me. And I blend it all together, and I stick it in the oven, and when it comes out, I have the worst thing you've ever seen. A total disaster. Now, imagine with me how ridiculous it would be if I take a picture of my ruined cake, and I go to the website, and I post it on the comments, and I say, worst recipe ever. Well, that would be ridiculous, because I didn't do what the recipe said. I left things out. I did more of other things to try to make me feel better about it, and I only did other things halfway. I couldn't expect to make a perfect cake if I wasn't willing to obey the directions. And the same is true for us as Christian women. We have to actually see God's word as something we take literally and implement, and we do it fully. We don't leave things out. We don't go halfway on others. But if we want to be a godly woman, we want to be that finished product of the Titus II woman like we talked about, then we've got to actually do things God's way. We've got to see this ingredient list, as you will, and do what it says. I pray that we will be women who love our Lord enough to actually take his word literally, to do it well, and so that the watching world who so desperately needs to see the Savior we love will look at us and not have any reason to discount the word of God. I pray it's true of all of us. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for saving us, for redeeming us, for um, giving us new life in you, Lord, that you give us life and you give us life to the full. And I pray that we would represent you well, Lord, that people who look at us would see your scripture, your word played out, that we would be um, just a billboard of, of grace and kindness that doesn't make sense to the world around us because we're choosing to obey your word. I pray, God, that you would give us each the desire to serve you and to know you better, Lord, that you would give us courage as some of the things that are asked of us are hard to do. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would grow in us a desire to know you more and to walk with you more because ultimately, Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want you to be glorified in our lives. We want you to be glorified in our world, Lord, and we want to see you honored in everything. God, thank you for giving us your word so that we know how to honor you, Lord, and I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to do it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.